1: Come January 1st, the industry giant will use a definition of sepsis 3 to determine if a diagnosis of sepsis is clinically validated. Reporting our lead story this morning is Dr. Edward Hugh. Dr. Hugh is with the University of North Carolina Healthcare System, and Dr. Hugh is also the president of the American College of Physician Advisors. Also, on today's Monitor Monday, healthcare attorney David Glazer is standing by with another example of risky business. Tim Powell reports on a recent OIT investigation on Medicare Advantage organizations. Leslie March is standing by in Lexington, Nebraska, with the Monitor Monday Rural Healthcare Report. And healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel has the Monitor Monday Rack report. It's all about due process. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory
0: Services. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch.
2: Good morning, all. I'm reporting from O'Hare Airport, so excuse the background noise. You now, we spend a lot of time on Monitor Monday speaking ill of insurance companies, and it's usually for good reason. For example, I bet many listeners have had an inpatient admission denied by United Healthcare, where they were told that observation can go up to 72 or even 96 hours. Well, UHC's own observation policy, H005, specifies but only in rare and exceptional cases do reasonable and necessary outpatient observation services span more than 48 hours. But every so often, a story comes along that actually supports and ensures denial. And such a story was reported last week by the Center for Health Journalism. But the story really began with a CNN story about Healthcare denying approval for proton beam therapy for a woman with recurrent cervical cancer. The CNN story paints the perfect picture of the evil insurance company denying a treatment plan established by a prestigious academic institution. CNN even investigated the background of one of the United Healthcare medical directors, finding that she was fined $1,000 by her state medical board for her work at a tattoo removal clinic. What the Center for Health Journalism did was actually look for evidence that proton beam therapy was better than existing therapy for the patient, and there was none. The doctors were recommending it because they thought it was better. But thinking something is better and knowing it is better are two very different things. And the doctors even committed the cardinal sin. They used the fact that the treatment worked when she paid out of pocket for it as proof that it should have been approved. As much as we want to dislike insurance companies all the time, try not to generalize and look at each case based on its merits. They have a duty to ensure the medical care is appropriate and proven. In this case, the evidence or lack thereof, supported United Healthcare. I've asked Emily to put the article on the handouts tab so you can all read it. Now, in other news, CMS just changed the way that Max will be developing their local coverage determinations to allow more transparency and input from interested parties. But I have to say, the whole concept of a local coverage determination makes no sense at all to me. Should the standard of care vary that much across the U.S. that separate policies are needed? Should there really be a patient in New York with a medical condition who can get their care covered by Medicare, but may not have it covered if they moved across the border to New Jersey? If CMS doesn't have the capacity to write NCDs on everything, they could designate MACS, do the research, collect input, and hold the hearings, and then adopt them nationally. Now, finally, CMS also announced that they're posting for public view all hospitals that have been cited for substantial deficiencies by accreditation organizations like the Joint Commission. But the reason is not to increase patient safety, but to put pressure on these organizations to improve their oversight of hospitals. Now I'll warn you, reading these reports can be a little scary. If you want to find them, go to qcor.cms.gov, then click on Accrediting Hospitals on the left-hand side. Um, The the web address will be in the chat box if you missed me saying it. That's
1: it, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. There's a flurry of new cases in which judges are ordering the government to refrain from recouping alleged overpayments until a hearing has been held. It's about due process. Here now with that report is health care attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole.
3: Good morning, and thank you for having me. Uh, Due process is one of the cornerstones of our society. However, for Medicare and Medicaid providers, due process in the past has been non-existent. Imagine that you're accused of owing $5 million to the government some CPT code error, you disagree. You believe that your documentation was proper and that you filed for reimbursement correctly. You appeal the decision that you owe $5 million. You continue conducting business as normal. Suddenly, you realize the government is recouping the $5 million now. Prior to any hearing before a judge, you haven't been found guilty. So what has happened to innocent until proven guilty in due process? Well, now a new flurry of cases are now going in the provider's way, saying that they cannot recoup prematurely. For Medicare appeals, there's a five-step appeal process. The law requires the government to not recoup during the first and second levels of appeal. But the first and second levels are jumping through hoops and not normally successful. It's at the third level, the appeal to an impartial administrative judge, that the alleged recoupments are usually overturned. After the second level, according to the black letter of the law, the government can begin recouping. And sadly, in the past, the courts have held that it's proper for the government to recoup these reimbursements after the second level. However, new case law is turning the tide. For example, on September 27, 2018, Accident, Injury, and Rehab PC versus Azar was published. It's a new trend in favor of providers that seems to be arising. This is fantastic news for providers across the country. In Accident, Injury, and Rehab PC, the court found that the ALJ stage of the appellate process is the most important for providers, as it provides the first opportunity for plaintiff to cross-examine defendant's witnesses, and examined the evidence used to formulate the statistical sample. Sixty-six percent of RAC denials are reversed by an ALJ. The court found that plaintiff's procedural due process rights were violated by premature recoupment. The court granted accident, injury, and rehab PC's preliminary injunction, restraining and enjoining the government from withholding Medicare payments during the appeal process. When the government starts recouping, filing a preliminary injunction has been shown to be the best course. In the past, most preliminary preliminary injunctions asking the court to order the government to stop recoupments was dismissed based on jurisdiction. In other words, the courts held that the courts themselves did not have the authority to render an opinion as to recoupments prior to a hearing. Now, however, the trend is turning and courts are starting to rule in favor of the providers, finding a violation of procedural due process based on a collateral claim exception. There are four criteria in order to win a preliminary injunction. You have to show likelihood of success on the merits, irreparable harm in the absence of a preliminary injunction, the balance of the equity tips in the party's favor, and that the injunction is in the public's interest. There is an esoteric legal theory called exhaustion of administrative remedies. Jurisdiction is the key to these preliminary, preliminary injunctions, but there are exceptions to this judicial bar. The Supreme Court of the United States articulated a collateral claim exception. The Supreme Court permitted a plaintiff to bring a procedural due process claim requesting an evidentiary area hearing before the termination of disability benefits collateral claim is basically when a party brings a claim in federal court when that constitutional challenge is entirely collateral to its substantive claim of entitlement and this is how providers are going to win going forward back to you chuck
1: Thank you very much, Nicole. That was Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Leslie March, Timothy Powell, and our special guest, Dr. Eddie Hughes. This is Monday. It's October the 8th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by.
0: Now you can learn how to protect reimbursement when payers attempt to downgrade respiratory failure, malnutrition, encephalopathy, and sepsis, four of the leading causes of claim denials. DRG downgrading is a widespread tactic used by payers to lower hospital payments by reducing DRGs and inappropriately denying relevant diagnostic codes. But during an exclusive RAC Monitor webcast, you and your team will receive the latest information on the ever-changing body of medical evidence on these denial-prone DRGs. This important webcast is Tuesday, October 23rd at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now to attend Protect Reimbursement and Avoid Denials for Respiratory Failure, Malnutrition, Encephalopathy, and Sepsis. To register for the webcast, click on the
1: handout tab in today's program. We're back in a program note. Now you and your team can benefit from the latest compliance and regulatory education when you subscribe to the RAC Monitor educational webcast Subscription program. Here now with the Monitor Money Risky Business
4: segment is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, what is risky this morning? Chuck, one of my goals is to make sure clients get to keep money for the work that they do. I don't mind when an overpayment is recouped because there was a bill for services that were never provided. But it really bothers me when a payer attempts to use some meaningless technicality to claw back money. Similarly, I don't want clients refunding in those types of situations. And in that vein, if you missed an email from Rack Monitor um, a week ago entitled uh, Tools for Avoiding Risky Business and Unnecessary Refunds, it was exactly a week ago, you might want to take a look at that one. So I want to thank Shannon DeConda, Um, from doctors' management who called my attention to this gem. She's helping a clinic in an audit where the CMS contractor denied claims because the records were signed months after the date of service. The contractor cited language in the program integrity manual that said providers should not add late signatures to the medical records beyond a short delay that occurs during the transcription process, but instead should make use of the signature authentication process. Now, Shannon's client will hopefully be appealing from this audit, because the auditor clearly doesn't understand Medicare regulations, policy, or common sense. So first, let's focus on signatures. Whoever wrote that letter should have spent a little more time in the very same section of the program integrity manual, because the manual is quite clear that missing signatures from E&M documentation shouldn't result in a denial, as the manual says, if the signature is missing from any other medical documentation other than an order, Max and CERT should accept signature attestation from the author of the medical record entry. Under that instruction, a signature that is entirely missing isn't a problem. Yet this contractor is taking the position that a late signature requires a denial. Think about that. So if the signature is missing, you get an attestation, but because the signature was delayed, then there's just an overpayment? So that contractor would fail a logic class. Now I want to add that the program integrity manual is actually flawed. It asserts that when signatures are missing from orders, the order needs to be disregarded. And that instruction flies in the face of an issuance in the Federal Register that notes that many orders don't even need to be written, let alone signed. The A Halloween 1997 Federal Register describes the rules for an independent diagnostic testing facility, and it notes that the regulations require an order be written in an IDTF. But in a physician clinic, orders for diagnostic tests do not need to be in writing. Because many people don't believe this, I'm going to say it again for emphasis. According to the Federal Register, in a physician clinic, There is no requirement that an order for a diagnostic test be reduced to writing. Now, if the order need not be in writing, it certainly doesn't need to be signed. So let me be very, very clear. A missing signature should not justify the denial of a service. If you have a claim denied for a missing signature, it's calling out for an appeal. Next week, I'm going to talk about another flaw in the audit that Shannon was talking to me about, In the meantime, let me paraphrase the ace of base. You don't have to see them sign. The contractor needs to open up its eyes and read the rules. The contractor is demanding without understanding. Ace of Ace. I'll turn it back to
1: you, Chuck. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredericks and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. There's been a spike in the closure of rural hospitals, according to the Government Accountability Office, the GAO as we know them. The GAO says that 64 rural hospitals closed between 2013 and 2017, and in the face of that bad news, Leslie March has good news to report this morning about her rural hospital in Lexington, Nebraska, where she's the CEO. So good morning, Leslie. We're always happy to hear good news about rural health care in America. What's your good news?
5: We actually have been working hard to ensure that we can bring folks into our, our hospital recruit physicians and um, non-physician providers um, to deliver that care that rural healthcare so badly needs. And in doing so, we've been able to increase our revenue by 40% our gross revenue over um, the past four years. So that's really been impactful in our community when you think about um, rural healthcare and uh, the impact that they have on a rural community. I kind of like to think about it as as one leg on a three-legged stool along with the city and school. And as we know, without one of those legs, that, that chair, that stool is pretty uh, wobbly. So um, we've been able to use things like uh, to leverage uh, technology and to have e-hospitalist programs and to bring in new surgical services. And, and we've done that based on what are the needs of the community. Uh, you mentioned that on uh, in September, the GAO just released that report. And I think it's important also to note that there are OB deserts now across the um, the country. In 1985, there were 54 percent of rural communities that had OB services, and 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 now there are 24 percent of those communities that have OB services. In our community, it's critically important that we do provide those services, and so we continue to do so. Um, but it is a, a national crisis, and I think it's important for all of us to share the successes that we've had. And, and to that, I would say that we, we did a study and, uh, and we communicated that the findings in terms of what do we actually contribute to the local community economically and what do we contribute to the state overall. And it's really compelling when you think about the fact that the jobs that we provided were about 424 jobs. Uh, which had an impact on state and local taxes to the tune of one point five three five million. So um, you know there's a lot of things that we need to do in order to be able to uh, be, be able to communicate with our communities and to, with our legislators to impact you know to, to talk to them about the impact that we have on our communities and on the health of of, of the people that live in our communities. Lexington is a uh, diverse community. Uh, we have a beef packing plant, and and really we had to come up with some ways to make this all work out. We had to be creative. We had to get the community behind us, and that's exactly what we did. We put a, a rehab clinic in um, our beef packing plant, and we put an occupational medicine clinic in our, in our uh, beef packing plant. These all help to contribute to our overall bottom line, but also to the care of the community the community began to realize that we were a critical component of, of the services that were being offered in our community and that we were every bit as good as, as any other hospital in the surrounding areas. So I think it's really just been um, a delight in terms of being able to, to communicate to, our, to, to my fellow uh, colleagues and in, in, in across the state to legislative uh, bodies and also to our own community members that we really do make a difference and it's important that rural stays uh, relevant and so I would just ask that everybody advocate uh, for the continued programs that exist for rural health care delivery. Thanks Chuck.
1: Thank you Leslie. That was Leslie March. Leslie was calling in from Lexington, Nebraska. Leslie is the Chief Executive Officer of the Lexington Regional Health Center. Thanks again Leslie. A recent investigation by the OIG found that Medicare Advantage plans overturned, get this, 75% of their denials. Timothy Powell, Monitor Monday National Correspondent, reports on this developing story. Good morning,
6: Tim. Good morning, Chuck. As you said, the Office of Inspector General recently found that between 2014 and 2016, 75% of all appealed Medicare Advantage denials are being overturned, equivalent to roughly 216,000 denials a year. And I think that the actual number of overturned denials is not the real issue. The issue is, the issue is that the, uh, 200, the 216,000 uh, denials represent a small sliver of all paid claims. The issue really is the number of claims that were denied and not appealed. I would grant and argue that only claims of a well-funded and organized provider that an organized provider felt strongly about were appealed. And I don't think it means that 75% of all denials were incorrectly denied. Even if, with that said, I think that M.A. plans are taking advantage of excessive denials to reduce payments to providers. If a payer denies a claim, at the very least, the payer has denied the time that they would eventually have to pay the claim. If the payer is lucky... Uh, the provider will lack the organization to appeal the claim. The worst case scenario for the payer is the claim will eventually be overturned on appeal. The payer already has an appeals department and the incremental cost of responding to an appeal is low. The reduction in cost of payers for not having having to pay for denied claims and the claims for which the appeals do not succeed outweigh the payments for successful appeals of payer staff. Always remember that for payers denying claims is a gold mine. MA plans also suddenly started several years ago to argue that they could use the same rules and have the same rights as Medicare when providers appealed underpayments. In lockstep, MA plans began to claim that Medicare's requirements that underpayments be appealed 120 days after the date that the claim was paid also applied to MA plan payments. The real problem with this has to do with add-on payments, such as disproportionate share hospital payments that are adjusted by Medicare as a result of cost report settlements. I had a large client in the Midwest that failed to get paid by an MA plan for DISH payments for 18 months. When we filed a request for adjustment of the payments, Humana argued the provider only had 120 days from the date of the underpayment to request relief. On the Medicare cost report, conversely, DISH was properly paid based on computed factors. Uh, Also in the case of M.A., we are seeing a huge number of downcoded claims that end up in the appeals bucket. M.A. plans systematically underpay certain inpatient claims uh, as outpatient claims and reduce the payment of other inpatient claims to lower DRGs. Prime Hospitals in California, uh, Nevada, New Jersey, Michigan, and Texas recently was allowed to sue Humana outside of the appeals process for decreasing claim payments, based on uh, using a lower rate. Again, many MA plans argue that the provider only has 120 days from the date that the claim was paid in order to uh, enforce the downcoding. In conclusion, first as always, look at your denied claims from all MA plans. If you do not have enough staff to properly work your claims and consider outsourcing them to a good company, look at your MA contracts and your out-of-contract MA claims. If your contract or payment is based on Medicare, make sure that the add-on payments and rates are properly paid. And if there are underpayments, then make sure you appeal them within 120 days of receiving payments. Look at root causes for denied claims and if the denial seem to be arbitrary, consider meeting with your MA plan. And with that, back to you, John.
1: Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Monitor Money National Correspondent Tim Powell. Tim is a nationally recognized expert on regulatory matters, including the False Claims Act, ZPIC audits, and OIG compliance. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, United Healthcare is putting providers on notice. Come January 1st, the industry giant will use Sepsis 3 definition to determine if a diagnosis of sepsis is clinically validated. Reporting a lead story this morning is Dr. Edward Hugh. Good morning, Dr. Hugh.
7: Thank you, Chuck. United Healthcare announced last week that it would be adopting the third international consensus definition for sepsis and septic shock for all of its lines of business effective January 1st, 2019. This definition is better known as Sepsis 3. The announcement is significant because it informs providers what United and its contractors will use during sepsis clinical validation audits. Presumably, it should also inform what United will report to CMS when reporting sepsis diagnoses for capitated payment calculations. That United Healthcare is doing this should not be a surprise to the medical community. After all, many payers adopted sepsis 3 long ago. Why? Because Sepsis 3 identifies fewer cases of sepsis than Sepsis I or Sepsis 2, it is a higher bar than the previous versions, which were based on SIRS criteria. However, regardless of the impact of sepsis on DRG payments, we must look at the direction of the broader medical community on sepsis. Since the publication of the Sepsis 3 definition in February 2016, recognition of the new definition has gradually become more widespread in the medical community. Studies have shown that the SOFA score, the basis of the clinical criteria for sepsis 3, consistently outperforms SIRS criteria in the identification of patients at high risk of dying. The Surviving Sepsis Campaign incorporated sepsis 3 into its guidelines in 2017. The medical reference up to date, while acknowledging that sepsis 3 is not universally accepted, writes that SIRS criteria have fallen out of favor since its presence is quite nonspecific. The biggest holdout to sepsis 3 is still CMS, which rolled out its SEP1 core measure based on sepsis 1 and sepsis 2 criteria shortly before the publication of sepsis 3. However, a meta-analysis of the CMS measure published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in April, as well as a more recent study published in Critical Care Medicine this month, failed to show a correlation between SEP1 core measure adherence and improved sepsis outcomes. The biggest criticism of Sepsis 3 has been that it might delay treatment for sepsis because SOFA requires more time to develop and score than SIRS. Critics have argued, should the studies that showed aggressive and protocolized treatment for sepsis, diagnosed by SIRS criteria, be thrown out because a panel decided to change the research definition of sepsis? Actually, I'm with the Sepsis 3 authors here because if you look at those studies, none used SIRS alone as the sole inclusion criterion. Patients not only had SIRS, but also had to have evidence of organ dysfunction, hypotension, or septic shock in order to be included in the study. The Sepsis-3 authors essentially took the stance that SIRS was the less important and less specific entry criterion. In other words, how many really sick people did these studies exclude from potentially beneficial treatment because they had to meet SIRS criteria as well? Sepsis-3 is defined in a manner to identify the really sick folks believing that organ dysfunction and shock recognition is not enhanced by additionally applying SIRS criteria. Earlier this year, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign attempted to address early treatment of sepsis by proposing an hour one bundle for sepsis treatment with antibiotics and IV fluids within one hour of ED triage presentation. However, the Infectious Disease Society of America voiced strong opposition to this, fearing that many non-septic patients would be treated unnecessarily or even harmed by such an aggressive time frame. They cited data that already as many as 40% of, quote, sepsis, unquote, admissions to the ICU do not actually have infections and thus by definition cannot be septic. In response, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign has been put in the awkward situation of putting forth the hour one bundle but then asking hospitals not to implement it until more expert discussion can occur. It is clear to me that sepsis three is here to stay for the foreseeable future, and I commend United Healthcare for recognizing that and adopting an emerging standard in sepsis diagnosis. It is also becoming clearer to me that how we define sepsis may not be critical to the process of recognizing bad infections and initiating early aggressive treatment. What's wrong with worrying about what to label it, whether to label it sepsis later? That's all. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Hugh. That
1: was Dr. Edward Hugh. Dr. Hugh is with the University of North Carolina Healthcare System, and Dr. Hugh is also the president of the American College of Physician Advisors, frequent sponsors of Monitor Monday. We thank them very much for that. Now's the time for our Monitor Monday Q&A, and David, uh, time for one quick question or a reaction to what's been said this morning.
4: Yes, that question's for Dr. Hugh, actually, if you could stick around here. Do you think that the SOFA score has to be in the chart, no matter how sick the patient is, for UHC to approve the payment? No, I I do not believe
7: so. And and honestly, that's probably um, a a whole other topic that needs to be discussed. The, The SOFA criteria are designed to recognize patients who have organ dysfunction over a baseline level of chronic comorbid illness. Um, The the SOFA score, in my opinion, does not need to be actually physically stated in the chart as long as the organ recognition can be recognized in the chart. I also want to make a distinction between the the sepsis definition, which is really tied to life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection, and the 2015 clinical criteria for sepsis, which is based on SOFA. SOFA is not the only way to diagnose organ dysfunction. In fact, the Sepsis-3 authors also looked at the logistic organ dysfunction score or a system, uh, and found that it performed equally well as SOFA, but they chose SOFA because SOFA was just a little bit easier to calculate than the so-called LODs score. So I, I think as long as you can make the argument that there is clear evidence of organ dysfunction related to infection, then that actually meets the definition of sepsis 3, regardless of SOFA, although because the clinical criteria, the clinical application invokes SOFA, I think it is helpful to be able to calculate a SOFA score or, or rather to, to know when SOFA points are lost. Like for instance, if there's, a, um, if there's evidence of thrombocytopenia that is new and, and not a patient's baseline, that you know that you already have lost a couple SOFA points if the thrombocytopenia is below a certain level. And so you know that the maximum SOFA score cannot be greater than 13, for instance, which would qualify for sepsis.
4: Thank you so much, Dr. Hugh. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, David, and
1: thank you again, Dr. Hugh. That's going to be a wrap for us. And special thanks to our outstanding panelists this morning, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Leslie March, Tim Powell, and, of course, our special guest, Dr. Edward Hugh. And we thank you for starting off your week with us this morning. I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you again for being with us, and have a great week, everyone.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.